Good morning, church. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. This morning we are considering verses 27 through 36. Now the subtitle of this series of sermons through Acts is simply Resurrection Power Unleashed. Resurrection Power Unleashed. I I think the subtitle is important, critical indeed. And here's the reason. It is critical because one of the easiest things to do with the book of Acts is to read it as a mere historical account of the early church while losing sight of who stands behind it. And that's precisely what we must avoid at all costs. We cannot afford to read through the book of Acts as a mere historical record while missing the central character of the whole story, which is neither Paul nor Peter, but Jesus risen from the dead. These are the acts of the living Christ. Without the empty tomb, there would be no book of Acts, there would be no Christians, there would be no preaching, there would be no salvation. In in short, without the empty tomb, there would be no church. There would be no church. We would not be here apart from the empty tomb. But the church did not die in the first century, even though, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, it should have died, given all her fierce enemies. On the contrary, the church, as you know, it multiplied, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the whole world, and against all odds. This demonstrates Two things, two things. Number one, that the cross in which Jesus died fulfilled its purpose. Fulfilled its purpose. Jesus actually bought the church. That's why we're still here. Jesus did actually reconcile sinners to God through his cross. And it also, the existence of the church, the fact that we didn't go away, demonstrates that the tomb of Jesus is indeed empty. He is risen. He is risen from the dead. And it is his power as the risen Lord that sustains us by the Holy Spirit. That's why the church will never go away. Beware, therefore, as we enter into the book of Acts, of losing sight of the supernatural. We are not materialists. We are believers in the world of the unseen. We walk by faith, not by sight. And the book of Acts is a divinely inspired historical record of how the supernatural Lord Jesus who is now exalted at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth, how he exercises his rule and his reign from his heavenly throne. 
This is what the book of Acts is about. It's telling us how the Lord Jesus, now risen from the dead, exalted at the right hand of the Father, he's exercising his rule and reign from above. Now, his present rule and reign, however, on this side of the full consummation and glorification looks somewhat messy. The book of Acts, in fact, feels a bit messy, doesn't it? And this is the case primarily because the book of Acts is not shy when it comes to showing us suffering. It is not shy when it comes to showing us sufferings, the sufferings of the early church. Now, let's, let's, let me make a brief point here, something that just came to my mind. How can we reconcile the fact that Jesus is ruling on high with the sufferings and the enemies of the church here on earth? You know what the answer, I believe, is? Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. What did, the, what did the Father say to the Son? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies what? Footstool. And then he says this, rule, not above, not next to, but in the midst of who? Your enemies. So can we say that Jesus is ruling and reigning on high as king of all things with all authority and also say that his enemies are still around? Yes, because he rules in the midst of his enemies. So the book of Acts does not hide the suffering, sufferings of the church. We learn about the gospel of peace this morning as we study a book on peace. And you are all encouraged to be a part of Sunday school. Wonderful time of learning. And we learned about peace this morning. And Jesus is the prince of what? Peace. But interestingly, the book of Acts teaches us that as the spread of the gospel of peace enters the world, it creates a lot of turmoil. That's what we learn from the book of Acts. As peace goes into the world, it creates a lot of conflict and turmoil. But the apostle Paul was a man of peace in the midst of of much conflict because the Apostle Paul, he wanted to know Christ as we were singing this morning just a few moments ago. He wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. In Acts chapter 21, verse 27, we see a turning point in the narrative in the book of Acts. For in that verse, Paul's sufferings begin. Paul's sufferings begin in verse 27. Remember now he's determined to go to Jerusalem. Now he's in Jerusalem and now he wants to go to Rome. And so we begin in verse 27. And I'm going to read it and make some comments along the way. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed. You might remember that as soon as Paul arrived in Jerusalem, James advised, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, James advised Paul to take the Nazarite vow along with four other men, to which Paul gladly agreed. He did not resist that. Now, according to the Mosaic law, as recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verse 9, 
If a man became impure during the Nazarite vow, he had to shave his head after how many days? Anybody know? We just read it. Seven. Seven days. Now, the assumption then in verse 27 is that after all of Paul's travels through Gentile lands, right? He's coming from Gentile lands all around the Mediterranean Sea. According to Jewish tradition, he would have been in need of ritual purification. Therefore, the seven days began very soon after Paul arrived in Jerusalem, the next day indeed, and he engaged in the Nazarite vow. But the bigger point, as I saw to demonstrate two Sundays ago, was that Paul loved his countrymen, the Jews. And so Paul wanted to remove all the potential barriers between the Jews and the gospel. He wanted them to believe in the gospel of Jesus. Paul was a man bound not only by a mission, but primarily by love, by love. As he says clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 and 22 and 23, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all, said Paul, for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is not Paul's first demonstration of deep love for the Jewish people, of course. Remember that soon after the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, what did Paul do? He had Timothy, remember? He had Timothy, his companion, circumcised. Why? Because he wanted to minister to the Jewish community, and so he wanted to remove the offense of having an uncircumcised man alongside him. Remember that Timothy's dad was a Greek, and so he had Timothy circumcised in order to remove the barrier, in order to remove the offense. And for the sake of the gospel, what did Timothy do? He agreed. He agreed. And then right before coming to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, Paul also took a Nazarite vow in order to do what? to enter the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus so that he could minister to them as well. So here again in Jerusalem, in chapter 21, verse 27, he agreed to take a Nazarite vow for the same reason. He loved the Jewish people. He wanted them to come to Christ. And when the seven days were almost up, and possibly Paul was about to shave his head, this happens in verse 27. The Jews from Asia, meaning the ones from Ephesus most likely, who had met Paul during his third missionary journey and they already hated him. They came to Jerusalem and it says, and seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Is that true? Was that true? Now, this is the first wave of sufferings that came against the Apostle Paul. And it came based on a severe misunderstanding of what Paul actually taught. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a strong argument to be made that Paul actually wrote the entire letter of Romans. 
There's an argument to be made. I've read this argument. It's wonderful. makes a lot of sense that Paul actually wrote the entire letter of Romans to answer the accusation of verse 28. That this accusation ran through the entire ministry of Paul. That the Jewish people kept saying, you're preaching against Moses, you're preaching against the law, you're preaching against Israel, and that Paul wrote the letter of Romans. And where did Paul want to go, ultimately? To Rome. To talk to the Christians in Rome. And so it is possible, and in fact, uh, if you see the order in the English Bible, the canonical order is the book of Acts, and then immediately... The book of Romans, there, there's an argument to be made that these two are to be read as a unit. And that Paul is actually answering the charge of verse 28. Now remember that Paul engaged in the Nazarite vow, not because he was in need of purification. Jesus had already purified the Apostle Paul through his blood, according to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Instead, he did it to show himself not against Moses, not against the Jewish people, but in agreement with Moses and to remove the false charge that he spoke against the law or the temple. But it was clearly not enough in the eyes of the Jews from Ephesus. They hated Paul and they were determined to have him eliminated. So the false charges continue in verse 28. Moreover, they said, he, Paul, brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. There were very strict rules against bringing Gentiles into the temple. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city. And they, what? Supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Notice that this was a charge based on a supposition not a fact. They were coming up with all kinds of crazy charges against Paul. But this is what jealousy does. This is what evil does. This is what slander does. They don't care about the truth. They just want to hurt. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Mob mentality. Have you heard of it before? Mob mentality, not a new idea. It has been around for centuries. Mobs are a great tool of intimidation. But more importantly, they are great tools of confusion. Confusion, which we are about to encounter in just a few moments. I'm going to say more about that. The more people you can get on your side, the more fear you can create, and the greater the confusion that ensues. Thankfully... And by God's grace, Paul was like the wisdom of Proverbs. When I read the, the, the life of Paul, I think of the wisdom of Proverbs. Willing to stand up to the crowds and be heard. More important though, I want to draw your attention to a very sobering statement at the end of verse 30. The gates of the temple were what? They were shut. Hmm, I think Luke wants to make a point. I think Luke wants to make a point. I want us to dwell on this little uh, statement here for a little bit. The Jews had rejected Jesus and had him killed. Right? So remember that. Pretty important part of the human history. Now they were rejecting Paul's gospel of Jesus. Just like they had rejected Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7. 
They rejected Jesus himself. Then they rejected James. Then they rejected Peter. Then Stephen. And now they are rejecting Paul. The Jews, at this point, we can say they had officially rejected God's Son. And his message of salvation through his blood. They had rejected the Messiah. The shutting of the temple doors is telling indeed. I believe Luke is including this in the narrative to make a point. That's how the Jews felt about the Messiah and his saving blood. They shut the temple doors to Christ. They shut the temple doors to their true king. That reminded me of one terrifying word in the Hebrew language. Do you know which word I'm thinking about? If you know what word I'm thinking about, I'll give you a book. Ichabod. Ichabod. Oh, what a terrifying word. Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory has departed. The temple in Jerusalem, whose gates were shut to the Messiah, is now materially beautiful but spiritually rotten, spiritually rotten. Now, think about this. Just a few years after these events, in the year 70 AD, Christ himself shut down the Jewish temple forever, thus bringing the entire Jewish age to an end. Not only to an end, but to a very extremely violent, and have you ever read the account of what happened in the year 70 AD as the Romans came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple? It's extreme, extreme violence. And that was at the hands of the Lord Jesus who had predicted. He said, what is he going to do with the temple? Not a stone will be above another. Everything will be destroyed. So think about this. How many years does the book of Acts cover? Well, from the first coming of the Lord Jesus, right, uh, there about before his ascension, 40 days after his ascension, and then about 40 years, almost, almost right up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. How interesting, isn't it? Soon after the Jews shut the doors of the temple to Jesus and his apostles, the Lord himself shut the doors of the temple permanently. It was destroyed by the Romans. Not a stone remained above another as Jesus had said. But at this point in their history, the Jews don't know what's coming. So they thought their rage against Paul and his message was justified, just like Paul had thought at some point in his own life. How bad did they hate him? Verse 31, as they were seeking to hurt him, slap him around a little bit. No, as they were seeking to kill him, kill him. They hated Paul just as they had hated Jesus and just as they had hated Stephen enough to kill him. But Paul had said that he was willing even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. As I have said before, it bears repeating again. One of the greatest lessons that we can learn from the Apostle Paul was his refusal to be a man captured by the idol of self-preservation. 
He was not a man captured by the idol of self-preservation. This, my brothers and sisters, is a lesson we cannot afford to miss. Paul was a man of deep, unbending convictions that Jesus had both died and risen again from the dead, and he was willing to endure the consequences of living according to that truth. Are we? Are we? In the Lord's providence, however, during the ordeal, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Verse 32. He, meaning the, co- the, the tribune, a commander, at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The Jews had killed Jesus on a Roman cross. The Jews had killed Stephen with stones. They had killed James, the brother of John, with Herod's sword. Now they were seeking to kill Paul by beating him to death. Beating him to death. It's interesting because it seems like the gospel creates this really, really deep hatred, hostility in the world. Paul was being brutally beaten. But the Roman tribune heard about the commotion, the Bible says, outside of the temple in Jerusalem, and fearing riots, he went. Part, remember that part of the Pax Romana was to keep the social unrest at bay. This was partly the reason why Pontius Pilate feared the crowds during the trials of Jesus. He feared social unrest and riots. The Romans wanted social peace at all costs. In the greatest irony in all of human history, Pilate agreed to kill the prince of peace in order to keep his Roman peace. So the tribune, the commander, having the same desire for social peace and being a man of great power, a tribune would have been in charge of up to 1,000 soldiers. He came to the scene, and according to verse 33, what did he do? He arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. This reminds us, of course, of what the prophet Agabus had said in chapter 21, verse 11, during Paul's visit with Philip the evangelist in Caesarea. Agabus, remember, had predicted that Paul would have his hands, what? Bound, and that he would be given over to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. Now Paul literally has two chains on his wrists and is in the hands of a Roman commander known as the Tribune. Talk about prophetic precision. But it wasn't like Agabus knew this by coincidence. We talked about the consistency of this revelation, didn't we? Jesus and the Spirit both had predicted these sufferings for Paul in Jerusalem. In light of this, let me extrapolate one one important truth for us. Everything that God says will happen, will happen. Why do we have that certainty? Well, not only because God knows the future, but because God is in charge of the future. You know what history is? History is the work of God. History is the work of God. History is not random. History has a direction, and that direction is the fulfillment of God's 
perfect, unbreakable good will, which was determined when? Before the foundation of the world. That day in Jerusalem had been appointed for Paul. It was not accidental. It happened just as it had been designed by the Lord because God works all things, not some things, but he works all things according to the counsel of whose will? His own will, Ephesians 1, 11. So what is history? What is your history? What is the history of Paul? What is the history of the church? What is the history of the world? Is the unfolding is the unfolding in actual human history, in time, the unfolding of God's perfect, good, and wise will. But please know this, an even more important day has been appointed. A day to which your entire life is advancing very, very quickly. All the events that have taken place in your days, in your life, whether many or few, good or bad, all of them are leading you to this one divinely appointed day. As Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to do what? To repent. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this, he has given full assurance to all by raising him from the dead. History is moving toward that day. Judgment. Judgment is coming. The day is fixed. It will not delay. And what God has fixed no man can thwart, no government can thwart, no politician or president or king can thwart. Are you ready for that great and terrible day of judgment at the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said it is coming, therefore it will come. Therefore today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. Don't delay. On this day in Jerusalem, things took place precisely as the Spirit had said they would. Paul is not surprised. For this day had been ordained for him. He was told, Paul, you will suffer. If anything, this might have encouraged Paul, for it confirmed that the word of the Lord is true. He never, he never, he never lies. But the Roman tribune wanted to understand what was going on in the story. So at the end of verse 33, it says that he, the commander, the Roman commander, inquired who Paul was and what he had done. It is interesting how Luke presents the role of Rome in the beginning uh, years of the church. Rome, a polytheistic culture, empire with no interest in the gospel, always managed to protect the gospel, even if unknowingly. God used them to protect the gospel. If you think about it, the Romans put Jesus on the cross, which unleashed the gospel into all the worlds. And now Romans are saving Paul from death, which allowed the gospel, the freedom to continue to move forward. What an irony, huh? 
the biggest enemy of the gospel were not the Romans, but the Jews. How did this happen? We will address that in the coming weeks. There is a lot to be said about that. Why is it that the Jews failed to receive their Messiah and they hated the gospel so much? Well, chapter 22, verse 21, gives us a little bit of the answer. And we'll get there someday, okay? We'll get there someday. For now, consider with me how the commander, the tribune, after saving Paul from certain death by beating, could not get the answer he was looking for from Paul. Why? Verse 34 some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. They needed more silence. The, the tribune wanted to learn the facts. Even though he was a pagan, he had a sense of justice. Interesting. He didn't want to punish a man just because. He had a sense of justice. He wanted the truth. But the confusion of the crowds was unbearable, the Bible says. Nothing made sense. This is mob mentality once again. It is always confused. This reminded me of what happened in my own home country of Chile not very long ago. As the communists were seeking to take over and destroy the country, many people came out to the streets to join in the rioting. It was terrible. They destroyed millions and millions of dollars worth of property in my country not very long ago. Maybe you have heard of the story. Now, during the course of these very lamentable events, someone decided to go and interview the people in the streets and ask them a very simple, simple question. Why are you here doing this? Why are you rioting? Why are you destroying property? Why are you participating in this? Most of them... This is not a lie. This is the truth. Most of them had no idea why they were there. No idea why they were out there destroying property and rioting. Likewise, here in Jerusalem, we see big crowds joining hands, accusing a man. Why? They had no idea. They had no idea. But I want to point something out. That's a very important characteristic of evil that we cannot miss. Evil is a seed that grows the fastest in the soil of lies and confusion. Evil is a seed that grows the fastest in the soil of lies and confusion. If you have a confused person, a confused family, a confused society, evil can and will flourish. Evil loves confusion. And I will say more about that in just a little bit. Verses 35 and 36, they give us a picture of how violent the scene was. Verse 35, and when Paul came to the steps, as he was leaving, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowds, for the mob of the people followed, crying away with him. In their blatant confusion, the mob was clear on one thing. They all wanted Paul dead. They wanted Paul dead. The expression, away with him, means don't let him live, which they will repeat in chapter 22, verse 22. Now the stage is set for what will happen next, which is truly amazing. But this is as far as we will go today in our text. We'll save the rest for next Sunday. We will glean important lessons next week 
as we see how Paul responded to the upheaval against him. So now we can begin the sermon. <laughs> I have said this before, but I must say it again. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and that for obvious reasons, I believe the Apostle Paul is the most relevant example for us to follow in our times. We are called to be imitators of Paul for good reasons. He shows us the Christ-centered life. But the Christ-centered life assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes the resurrection of Jesus. Living the Christ-centered life would be impossible, even nonsensical, had the body of Jesus decomposed inside the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those words mean something only and exclusively because Jesus lives. He truly truly does. So let me finish by bringing a few points of application that relate to the resurrection of Jesus in our engagement with the world. These are just a few points for you to meditate upon. Because he lives, we can suffer well. Because he lives, we can suffer well. Why do I make this connection between the suffering, and the resurrection. Paul was suffering because of the resurrection. I've already made that point two Sundays ago. He was suffering because he believed and he preached the resurrection. Now we will dive into, the, into that subject more deeply in the weeks to come. For now, I just, want, I just have two sub-points here. First and more general, Paul's life, including that painful day in Jerusalem, was in the hands of the risen Lord, I'm just re-emphasizing a point that I've already made. Nothing in his life was random. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on where? Earth. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, then this authority extends even to our most difficult days. Brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of the truth that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority. Second, here's a second sub-point. Paul saw the resurrection of Jesus as something worth suffering for. Paul saw the resurrection of Jesus as something worth suffering for. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything. It speaks of a new reality and it places us believers in a new reality, in resurrection reality. But you might say, this is strange because the resurrection of Jesus and the future res resurrection of the dead is a religious conversation. Why would we suffer for it today? Paul lived in a religious context. Our context is more, quote-unquote, secular. No one really cares that much about the resurrection in our context. Everyone did back then because they were all about religion. Why should we suffer today for the sake of the resurrection? Well, if, if that's how you think, I would disagree. I believe everyone 
everyone is involved. I, I believe the resurrection has ramifications for everything. In fact, when Christians suffer in the world, it is because of the resurrection as well. Let me explain with my next point. Because he lives, we can speak order into confusion. Because he lives, we can speak order into confusion. I said that evil is a seed that grows the fastest in the soil of lies and confusion. Evil loves lies and confusion because these create disorder and chaos like what we saw in Jerusalem, whereas truth and clarity create order and peace. Today, we are seeing a different manifestations of confusion and disorder. The kind Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 1, where lies take the place of truth and people live disordered life, unnatural lives. But the same evil stands behind it. Now, let me see if I can make a point here by drawing your attention to an article that I just read a few days ago by uh, a man that I, that I respect highly, highly, historian Carl Truman. Carl Truman. He says something worth interacting with for a brief moment that I think applies. The point of the article was to address the reality, and this is the point that he made, that now in the Church of England, in the Church of England, more than half of the clergy affirmed homosexual marriage in the Church of England. 53.4% of their clergy, to be more specific. Other than pointing the fact, Truman wanted to extrapolate some lessons for us. One of these lessons is, he said, is that the battlegrounds are changing, he said. The old battle lines between liberal and conservative Christians, according to Truman, consisted in affirming or denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Was he raised from the dead or not? And that, he said, created the difference between liberal and conservative Christians. But now, Truman says, the new battle lines are questions of morality, he says. Such as whether homosexuality is right or wrong, or what is sexually proper. And then Truman adds his own take and his own conclusion on the matter by saying this, his words, and I quote, these questions of morality are of more significance for the broader life of the church within society than the resurrection. End quote. Those are his words. And here's where I have to respectfully, respectfully disagree with such a brilliant man. He has forgotten more than I'll ever know. By saying that questions of morality are of more significance than questions regarding the resurrection of Jesus, he's creating a dichotomy that doesn't really exist. We need to be clear about this. The debate still is about the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. The debate still is about the fact of the resurrection of Jesus and its implications. Here's what I mean. If Jesus rose from the dead, as the Bible says he did, then the question of morality, sexual or otherwise, is also settled. 
because the one who defeated death is Lord over all things, including our sexuality. Let us not separate the two. Let us not say, and I don't think that Carl Truman wanted to create the distinction, but let us not separate the two. In other words, the issue of sexual morality is not outside the purview of the resurrection. It belongs right in it. The resurrection of Jesus speaks order into our confusion because it settles our disputes regarding how to live. And if the clergy in the Church of England is affirming that which, that which Jesus condemns, this is symptomatic of the fact that they are denying the resurrection of Jesus because they are seeking to deny its implications. The battle lines have not changed. I believe Peter Latehart was correct when he wrote, and I quote, The world understands, sometimes better than Christians, how radical the gospel is, how fundamental the repentance it demands, how much things will have to change if the gospel is true. The world doesn't want to repent, and it doesn't like the people who call for repentance, end quote. I believe he's spot on. The Jews from Asia, from Ephesus, that attacked Paul, in Jerusalem, they knew that if Jesus rose from the dead, as Paul said he did, that meant a complete restructuring and reordering of their lives around this one fact. He rose from the dead. Everything changes. So instead of believing it, what do they do? Eh, let's kill the messenger. That, my friends is the sinfulness of sin. Today, likewise, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's Lord and he calls men and women to himself through repentance and faith, but some will seek to make war rather than believe. We must come to terms, brothers and sisters, with the fact that all these so-called culture wars are in an ultimate sense wars for lordship. Who is in charge? Are we our own lords or does that title belong to someone else? What do we say? Jesus rose from the dead and he was given all authority. For us Christians, that question is settled. We're not confused. Amen? Jesus is Lord. Let us speak order into our present confusion. The first thing that we can do, the basic thing that we can do is let us never compromise what we know to be the truth. In our conversations with our friends, with our families, let us not compromise because Jesus is Lord. And number three and final, and we'll be done with this. Because he lives, we can stand in the midst of opposition. This is what the Apostle Paul did. Let me just bring you one illustration from our times. You might have heard of Lizzie Marbach. How many of you have heard of Lizzie Marbach? No one. Okay. Uh, a now former communicators, communications director for a pro-life organization based in Ohio. And I'll finish with this. Not very long ago, she tweeted the following message. Quote, there is no hope for anyone outside of having faith in Christ Jesus alone. End quote. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking. Shocking. So offensive. To this very offensive Message, Congressman Max Miller publicly responded saying, quote, This is one of the most bigoted tweets I have ever seen. Deleted, Lizzie. Religious freedom in the United States applies to every religion. You have gone too far. End quote. Here's a question. 
And I want to finish here. Here's a question. I want you to really think about this. Is a tweet about Jesus worth risking your job and your reputation? Well, here's the answer, right? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then of course not. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Lizzie should have deleted that post immediately because the post wouldn't mean anything. Why risk anything for the sake of a man who died and decomposed thousands of years ago? But we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, therefore deleting that post means something. Now Lizzie did not delete it. She left it. Soon after this exchange, she was fired from her job at the pro-life organization for inappropriate online behavior. What would you have done? What would you have done? Paul encountered a mob in Jerusalem who sought to kill him for saying that Jesus rose from the dead and that therefore the dead will be raised at the last day. Is that message worth standing firm for and risking jobs, reputations, and even life? Paul gave a resounding yes. yes. And the reason we are here today is because generations past have also responded like Paul. Our Lord tells us this morning, yes, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, he has. He is alive forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder once again that Christ Jesus is alive. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And as the Bible calls us to imitate uh, him, to imitate Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, said Paul. Help us to love the world. Help us to love our neighbor enough to speak truth in love. Thank you for the resurrection, the reality that Jesus died for our sins, removed sin and the consequences of sin, the burden of sin, the condemnation of sin, and that he came out of the tomb with a glorified body and ascended and now is seated at the right hand of power. Help us to live in accordance with this glorious resurrection reality and to seek to make a difference in this world by speaking the truth in love. And we pray these things in the matchless, powerful, strong name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.